mindfulness mode. I think practicing acceptance is, is really, really important um, to be gentle on ourselves, right? Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, I'm here with a, well, an absolutely amazing story with an amazing man who has written a book to tell about this story. And I think you're going to be quite intrigued. It's all about Nepal. It's all about mountain climbing it's all about meeting the people there and making a difference in the world and i think this is going to be an absolutely fascinating chat i'm here with michael shao michael are you in mindfulness mode today i i am yeah for sure (laughs) (laughs) well michael i always start the interviews with this what does mindfulness mean to you Hmm. yeah no that's that's a great question i mean it's it's um you know, for me, it's about being in that or practicing that mindset of really being in in the present moment. Like I'm here with you, talking with you now. I'm not thinking about you know last uh, you know week, or I'm not thinking about what I'm going to be doing later on. I'm not thinking about any anything else. I'm just here, focused, aware um, on what I'm doing right now, and um, you know, without worry, without setting sort of expectations or you know. Uh, trying to worry about anything, you know, I've just focused on this, this moment and have in, in, in that awareness. And I think that's really what, um, what mindfulness means to me ultimately. Well, the story in your book and the book is called a story of karma. The story took you to Nepal and then took you back to Nepal. And something that you learned about Tibetan ways that you shared in your book is that over in Nepal, they're able to let go of the outcome and they just allow things to unfold as they will. And you talked about this when you decided to stay with a particular family in their tiny home and you suspected there could be 10 to 12 people there and their home was no bigger than a typical bedroom in a North American (laughs) house. And you you talked about how you were thinking like, how is this gonna work? And you thought, I'm just gonna let this go and let this unfold. Tell us, the thoughts that were going through your mind as you approached their home that day and you were you knew you and your wife were going to be staying over tell us what you were thinking this was our second time into this valley it was considered a lost valley um, because it had only been opened up you know a few years prior to our first time going in there uh, prior to that it was closed off for generations for you know hundreds of years And so it had opened up, we decided to go in there. And this was back in, the first time was back in 2012. And I went in there to climb this mountain. And there's this whole series of events that unfolded and we can talk about that. Um, But it led basically to, um, to meeting this little girl in this mountain village. And she, she showed so much passion for, for education and wanting to learn and, and just kind of approached us, um, you know, when her, when her friends were approaching us with chocolate, like asking for chocolate and candy, because they're seeing some of that now coming in with the trekkers. But she approached us um, with these little cards with English words written on them and and just wanting us to speak the words and, and things like that. So, you know, we could see, okay, this little girl, all she wants to do is to learn. So that kind of sparked a whole conversation, uh, you know, wanting to meet with her family and her parents and, and then getting to know them about, you know, what happens here um, for kids, you know, who want to go have some sort of education beyond what they would learn in their village. And, and so, you know, for the next eight years, we, um, 
we would go back to Nepal every year and visit with them. And, her, and the little girl's name is Karma and, and you know, grow a relationship with their family. And, and then so we went back in, um, in 2017 to visit them again in their village. And we brought the girls back to their village because at that point they were studying in a boarding school in Kathmandu, which is the capital city. Um, so we brought the girls back to their village. And if you imagine their village, I mean, it's, um, it's sitting at 14,000 feet in elevation. <laughs> you know, we're living at sea level here. Um, so you can imagine what life is like at 14,000 feet in elevation. And it's very hard to grow anything. You know, they're dealing with landslides, avalanches. Um, you know, at the time, um, they didn't have any electricity. The nearest road was five days away, a five day walk away across these high mountain passes. And, and uh, you know, part of the year during winter, they can't even leave because the, you know, everything's snowed in and the risk of avalanches is too great. So, um, and they're semi-nomadic, they move around with the seasons as well. So, you know, we're dealing with all of that. Um, but when we went back to the village in 2017, one of the goals was to, to have a conversation with the family about what they would, um, you know, kind of the future plans for for their girls, Karma and her younger sister Pemba, who we had, you know, gotten to know over the over the previous um, seven years, and uh, and so that was why we went back there. And 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 you know, to your question, I was thinking because it was multi uh, multiple days to get up there. I was thinking, okay, where where are Chantal? You know, where are we gonna um, where are we gonna stay? <laughs> and I had my tent and I had, you know, our provisions and everything um, because they wanted us to stay in the home. And I had been in their home before. <laughs> and and that's you know to, to your question, like I was trying to imagine, okay, where you know the family it's a family of twelve, um, or twelve with you know with a, we had a guide and a porter with us, and and uh, I was just trying to logistically think about uh, you know how that's going to work. And, um, but then, you know, one of the things, again, that I learned over that, over the last several years was just to, you know what, don't stress about it. Don't, you know, don't try and put yourself in the frame of mind of being in the village now, you know, when you're a few days out uh, and don't worry about that. I mean, you know, it, it's going to, we have an intention, <laughs> right? We have an intention to, to be together. We're going to figure it out. Um, it, it'll work out, right? <laughs> there was no sense of, of, of kind of like creating that additional amount of stress and anxiety ahead of time. Yeah, well, it was uh, it was incredible reading about that. And, and you talked so much about uh, the Tibetan ways and you talked about suffering. Mm. The higher we ascended, you said, the more rocks we saw with the Tibetan mantra. And you would say that better than I am, but it was <laughs> like Um Mani Padme Home that's, that's, Carved. That's so, so you kept seeing that on the rocks. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um Mani Padme Home. Yeah, it's a. It's Tell a, us about that. It's a. It's a Tibetan mantra, um, and you see it wherever you go. It's it's kind of painted on or carved into the into the prayer wheels. It's painted on the uh, you know the side of the buildings on the on the prayer stones there. Um, and so the, the higher we kind of ascended or, or the more we got into kind of this, this Tibetan, culturally Tibetan area, uh, the more we would see this mantra. And I met a, uh, I, I was kind of on this um, quest, <laughs> if you will, to, 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 you know, learn the meaning of this, this very deep mantra because it was everywhere. And I thought, you know, okay, there's, there's, what, what is the meaning of this? And, and no matter where I went, you know, people would kind of explain it and, you know, but they really wouldn't get to the, the depth of it. Right. And, um, and, and one of our Sherpas uh, that we were with Sherpa guides, I asked him, I said, you know, can you, and cause he showed a lot of wisdom around, you know, particularly around Buddhism and, and Tibetan Buddhism. And, and he said, Oh, wait for the, uh, 
wait for the, the Lama, the, the monk at this Tashi Lakang monastery. And this Tashi Lakang monastery, this was one of the most remote monasteries in all of the Nepal Himalaya. As you know, it would, took, it would take us a week to, to walk there or to trek there. And it was perched up on this hill overlooking this little village, which is the most remote outpost in this entire valley. And uh, yeah, so we went up there and I thought, okay, this whole, the entire week I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna ask this, this Lama, this monk, you know, about this mantra. And we get there and, um, and the, the door, it's locked. <laughs> the monastery is closed and, uh, and the Lama is nowhere to be found. <laughs> so, so in the meantime, I had met this, um, this young man uh, named Sanam Dorje. And Sanam Dorje, he had, he had left this little village called Fu when he was 14 years old because he had to leave to get education. Uh, he had to go all the way down to India to get education. He left, um, yeah, he hadn't seen his family in seven years. He hadn't seen his village in seven years. And he had just come back right when we were coming there in, in 2012. And our paths happened across exactly at that moment. And, and because I was shut down on this mountain that I was, I was you know, meant to climb, and I was forced to sort of hunker down in this village, uh, Sonam and I, we, we got to know each other. We became friends over days and, and we'd go on these, um, these walks together and, uh, and we just talk about, you know, his village and village life and all of these things and, and Tibetan Buddhism. And, and so one of the walks we took up to this, uh, this hilltop monastery. And, uh, and so when I, you know, found out that the Lama wasn't there, the door was locked, I, I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to ask Sonam Dorje about this phrase, Om Mani Padme Hum, and, and see what he says. And, and, you know, very, very wise man for his years. Um, but he, uh, you know, he thought about it for a moment. And, uh, and then finally, he said to me, you know, um, it's a blessing. It's a blessing, because all life to live, you know, to live is to suffer, all life has suffering. And, uh, and so, but to live is to also, um, you know, experience that suffering. And, you know, grow and expand through that suffering. And so our suffering is actually our karma and our karma is our life. So we bless, we bless our karma, we bless death, we bless life, we bless sickness, we bless health, because all of that is to live. Um, so, yeah, so I, I was very touched by, you know, very moved by his, I had never heard anyone have explained, you know, suffering in such a way before, where they're actually blessing it. And, and I thought, wow, that, that's actually very profound because, um, it made me realize, you know, at the time when he was explaining it, I was watching the river, uh, the Fu River sort of flow down and it was sort of carving its way through the valley and across, you know, around these big boulders and, and mountains. And, and I thought, wow, like, you know, that river has no idea where, you know, what lays around the next bend and the next bend after that, yet it still flows with intention. It still moves forward. And, uh, and you know, perhaps if that's the way of the river, um, perhaps that's also the way of life, and and through through that moving forward, um, we can continue to expand, you know, our own consciousness as well as you know uh, the world around us. So uh, that that kind of um, yeah, it was a very profound moment for me, and uh, and just sort of hit at the depth of that of that Tibetan mantra. I think very very uh, clearly. I'm so glad to hear your explanation of that mantra. And you did explain it in the book a, a bit too. So I'm really glad that you explained that to our listeners today. Now I want to go back to that pyramidal mountain. It was mm -hmm. it was so beautiful in the picture. And and you've got some incredible pictures in the book, by the way. Mm. I really enjoyed Thank looking you. at those at those pictures you put in there. But uh, you 
had decided, you know, you saw a photo of this mountain and it wasn't even known. You didn't even know if it had a name. You didn't know really any details about it, except that you wanted to climb it. Yeah. I mean, who does that? <laughs> who flies to Nepal with a team, you know, a team of mountain climbers and you're going to climb a mountain that you don't even know the name of or really exactly how to get to it. And wow, now later you discovered the name of the mountain, Chaco, yep. C-H-A-K-O. Had it been named before or was it named after you you went there? Uh, it had been named before, but it, it wasn't widely known. I, I discovered later that it had only been climbed once by a, a party of Japanese and, and it had a second attempt by a, a European team, but one of the members had fallen off um, the mountain and died and so they, they retreated. But um, you know, it's funny because when we were sitting there in this restaurant in 2011, and, and I was like, Nepal to me has been this mystical, magical place, uh, you know, call it being over romantic or you know, dramatic. But I don't know. For, ever since I was a teenager, I wanted to go there and being kind of this, um, uh, you know, being a bit fanatical about mountaineering, <laughs> you know, my. Yeah, well, you talked about that book you had when you were yeah, a teenager. Yeah. Tell us about that book. Yeah, yeah, my sister for Christmas, she one year, I think I was, I don't know, 14 years old or 15. And uh, she gave me this this book, uh, Trekking in the Himalaya. It was a Lonely Planet, one of those guidebooks, those Lonely Planet guidebooks. And and uh, and I just I, I I was hooked. It just captured me. I mean, the I was I just I was turning the pages so fast that I couldn't even read anything. I was just wanting to wow. jump around and and uh, you know I was looking at the pictures of the people and the culture and the places, the mountains, uh, these little dotted trails with you know strange names to me at that time. And, uh, and I just, the only thought I had was to run out of the house in that moment with, you know, I'm still dressed in my, in my pajamas, but I just wanted to no. like run over to Nepal at once and, and, and just with this Lonely Planet book. Um, but it would be years, you know, it would be this, if the, I was 14 then, uh, it wasn't until I was uh, in my early 30s before I would finally get uh, a chance to go to Nepal. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, you can imagine, you know, at, at one point when you're younger, you don't have the funds necessarily. Um, and then, you know, you kind of build your career over time and you don't have the, you know, you can't take like a big chunk of time off necessarily. Yeah. So it wasn't until I was about 30, uh, yeah, 32 before we, we finally went and, and, you know, I was sitting there, one of the other ch challenges was I never really knew what I wanted to do in Nepal, right? Did I want to go do the Annapurna circuit or Everest base camp or climb some other mountain or, you know, all these things, but everything that I kind of, you know, looked into, it just wasn't really, didn't feel like the right thing. And so when I was sitting with this friend who had just come back, and this was in 2011, and we were uh, we were chatting about Nepal, and and I was telling him about you know kind of my feelings toward it, towards it, and the culture, and he said he said oh I've got to tell you about this place I've got to tell you about this place called the Lost Valley, um, and he kind of hooked me <laughs> at the Lost Valley, <laughs> but uh, um, so we 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 spent a lot of time talking about that, and he explained you know about this valley and how it. Uh, it was a Bayul, it's considered a Bayul Valley. Uh, and Bayul is, a, it, it, it's a Tibetan word for, um, uh, for sacred. And it, it's a place where they believe that the spiritual and physical realms coalesce uh, at a much closer level. And, and, you know, and he was talking to us about the people and, uh, you know, how this valley had been closed for, for decades. And, and so, you know, so I thought, and I was looking through his pictures and I thought, this is, this is, this is perfect. This is it. Um, and then I came across the picture of the Pyramid Mountain. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, you know, I, I just couldn't, some mountains just speak to me that way. They just, I, I don't know what it is, but you know, when I see a, 
a certain mountain, I just, it's almost like love at first sight. I just have to, <laughs> to go and try and climb it. And, and, um, and so that was the way that this pyramid mountain, the effect that it had on me. And so we, Chantal, my wife and I, we, we put together this little team, a team of artists. Um, and our, our main objective was to, uh, to observe and learn from the people of that valley. And so we were, because we knew that the valley was going to experience unprecedented change now that it had been opened up. Uh, to the outside world, and and so I thought, okay, well, let's uh, let's get a photographer and let's get a musician and a and a, and a nature artist, and uh, and Chantal and I, we would do some filming and and um, see what we um, what we can observe and learn and and capture kind of a moment in time, and so that's when we went in there. But but when I came across that that pyramid mountain, I was like, oh my god, okay, <laughs> it, it was it was like like a seed in my mind secretly planted and, and that became kind of the overarching objective for me. Um, and we got in there. Uh, it took us, uh, what, how long did it take us? It took us over a week, uh, nearly two weeks to get to this little village and, and stay there and, and to find the mountain. And I finally found it and it was the most glorious thing Bruce I can ever, I mean, it was, it was just no picture could ever do it justice. And, and I, I just, I, I went into this mountain frenzy. I, I just had to go and, and 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 try and climb this. And the two guides I was with, two Sherpas, they were they were I think equally excited about it because it was a new mountain, and and they were you know they loved climbing as well. And and so we went there on route trying to find it, and that's where things started uh, spiraling out. Uh, that's where things started unraveling for me. Um, you know, we got caught in a snowstorm at seventeen thousand feet. We, um, you know, my gear bags with my climbing gear, you know, which was on this mule, the mule took off and then they were lost. And, and so all these things started falling apart. And, and, and I, I really started questioning, you know, why are the, you know, I've wanted to come here and climb this mountain you know, since I was a teenager. You know, why, why are all these things falling apart right now? Why are my dreams being crushed right on the very, you know, edge of being able to fulfill them? And, and uh, I, I went, you know, to be honest, I, I went through a full-blown identity crisis. <laughs> I, was just, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> and you describe some of that in your book. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Uh, it was. And, and fortunately, you know, Chantal and and um, and the team members, uh, Jason, Michael, and Eric, um, they were very supportive, <laughs> listening to me as I was going through this Jekyll and Hyde conversation with myself over multiple days and. And, but that was when I started connecting, you know, with uh, with Sonam Dorje and learning about the people there and the and the culture and 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 kind of these the challenges that they're having, um, you know, and having to send their kids away to get education, right? Because yeah. they don't have that in in the villages, and uh, you know, and trying to prepare their kids for for this modern world, which is and the modern world is encroaching in every place around the world as we speak, and and so. Um, you know, they, they have a saying up there, I learned, which is they'd rather their kids have a have a pencil in the hand um, versus a strap around the forehead uh, because they carry they carry the weight around the forehead. Um, so, they, you know, they know what it's like to be subjected for generations, uh, life as hard labor um, out in the mountains. It's survival out there. Right. Um, and so they're trying to just do the best for their kids. And, and what that means is that they have to end up leaving the villages um, to get, uh, to get a, uh, you know, an education beyond, beyond that village education. So, yeah, so these are all things that I started learning when we were hunkering down there. And, and, um, and then of course, all of that eventually led to, 
to meeting karma who she, yeah, and she tell was, us about the first time you laid eyes on karma <laughs> and, and like that it's beautifully told in the in the book but you tell us oh my goodness we were um so she she's actually in another little village called nar and uh and I, I was still, you know, if you can imagine my mindset at that point, I was still devastated. I was trusting in the flow of events um, because I had, you know, chosen to to trust in that. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave the mountain behind. And and so, but I was still struggling with it. And so when we got to this little village, this little village called Nar, which by the way, had I climbed the mountain, I don't think I would have gone there because we wouldn't have had the time. But anyway, there we were. And and I had just learned from Sanam about all this, you know, all these challenges around education. And, and, and I learned that NAR had a little school, a little stone school. And so I thought, you know what, we should go look at this and, and see what they're doing there. And I thought maybe there's some hope, right, for, for the kids of that village. And so we went there. And when we got there, um, it was an open, kind of an open courtyard, little stone school, open courtyard. The kids had had dragged the benches out into the courtyard because they wanted to be in the warmth and the light of the sun. Uh, there's no electricity in and it's very dark in the, in the actual classroom. So, um, so there they were. And at the head of the class was this little girl teaching them English numbers, um, seven-year-old girl teaching English numbers. And I, I just, I don't know, something in me kind of sparked about it and I just thought this is interesting and and um, and met eventually we met the teacher um, who is he had been sent there uh, is a little government school maybe scratches the surface of grade one um, and but he, he had been sent there and his village was far away you know probably two weeks away to get there um, so he kind of felt like he told us he kind of felt like he had been banished to the end of the earth uh, he had no desire to be there he didn't really want to teach you know um, so I guess that's part of the reason why karma was up there teaching, but, um, but anyway, you know, we, we were just, I don't know, there was something we had seen hundreds of kids, you know, on our entire track, but, um, but there was just something markedly different about her. I, I can't quite explain. I just felt this, this kind of interesting connection and, and it wasn't long before the kids, they, um, they caught uh, sight of, of Michael's guitar. He, he had his guitar slung over his shoulder. And they probably had never seen a guitar, let alone heard one. And so, uh, so they were they were kind of wanting us to play some music. And and Michael, you know, he's a bit of an entertainer. And he went up there and started uh, started teaching them this jazzed up rendition of "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." And the kids caught on right away, and they were all singing to the lyrics. And it was just beautiful. I mean, you imagine this, these you know kids uh, in front of these seven thousand meter snow capped peaks. It was just just a beautiful scene. Um, and then the teacher got a little bit motivated and he brought out this traditional Nepali drum and he wanted the kids to dance uh, for us, you know, one by one. And he picked this little girl who was so confidently teaching before he picked her out and he said, you know, you dance now in front of these people. Um, and, and she just froze. She just um, was petrified. She was like a little petrified animal in the corner and not knowing what to do. And, and you could kind of see her uh, tearing up and it looked like she was internally crying and, and Chantal, you know, she couldn't take it anymore. And, and she just kind of went up and, and, uh, and, and just stood next to this little girl and, and started dancing with her. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I was beautiful. Um, and Chantal was, I mean, she didn't know what she, what she was doing. She was trying to do a Nepali dance and she was waving her arms around. And, 
Um, and the little girl was trying to copy Chantal's improvised moves. And you know, it's just, uh, but in that moment, the little girl, Karma, she forgot about everybody watching and she forgot about us and, and the teacher. And, and they were just, in, Chantal and Karma were just in their own moment, uh, in their own uh, 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 world, you know. And um, yeah, it, it just, I don't know, something I think between the three of us kind of connected in that moment. And, and so after school, we went back to where we were staying, uh, we were camping and, de- and the, and the kids, some of them, they found where we were staying. And so karma, this little girl, she, she ran, um, just ran into Chantal's arms and just gave her the biggest heart to heart hug. And then she, um, and then she turned to me and she just leaped into my arms and just, like, just I was oh, like, Jesus. wow. Like, and I just, I'll never forget like her little hands, like kind of grabbing the back of my neck and, and I could feel her heartbeat, you know, on mine. And I was just, you know, in that one moment, I, it was like half a second of a moment, just, I realized, okay, this is why I'm not climbing the mountain. And, um, and then that's when her other friends came in. And, and as I mentioned, they, they were kind of rushing around us, asking for chocolate and candy. And, and that's where karma, she kind of backed off. And when they were done, she came back with these cards and she wanted us to, to, to teach her these English words. And, and that's where Chantal and I really started asking these questions like, okay, what is happening here? What are the plans, you know, for her education, this little stone school that we visited, you know, as I said, scratches, maybe the surface of grade one, clearly karma's mastered everything that it has to teach. And, you know, if she wants to, to learn beyond, uh, you know, beyond this, beyond what she has access to here in the village and in the village, they have, um, you know, virtually no books even uh, other than the scriptures that they would have in the monastery. I'm going to interrupt briefly, Mindful Tribe. I'm talking to you if you've been trying and trying to lose weight. Maybe you're feeling it's hopeless. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you've tried so many different ways to lose weight. Well, you know what? It's not hopeless. I'm now trained and qualified as a hypnosis practitioner. And more and more people are using hypnosis to quit smoking and lose weight. And you know what? I'm taking on clients. Hypnosis changes everything because it changes the way you think. It changes your mindset. I've lost 35 pounds myself with the help of hypnosis. And using mindfulness and hypnosis, I'll help you lose your weight. And you deserve it. Send me an email, Bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and put weight loss in the subject line. We'll get on a free 45-minute discovery call to answer all your questions. So now, back to the show. Here we have access to the internet or access to libraries. And, you know, uh, even if we're coming from, a, from a, you know, in a kind of an, a poor area, uh, we still have access to information, right? Um, so... Uh, whereas out there in the, in the mountains, Karma had never even seen a bicycle, you know, so um, and, and no access to info, like no access other than the trekkers coming through with their smartphones and, you know, the few scriptures and maybe a couple of raggedy books in the village. At that time, they would have had no no access to other information. So so that's where Chantal and I, we, we kind of started asking these questions and, and wanting to learn from the parents, like, what are their plans for for the girls and and we ended up meeting with their family in their little, you know, in the stone home and around the Dungfield stove and, and had a conversation through broken translation. Um, but we learned from them uh, that education is the biggest blessing that they could ever hope for, for their girls. And they had six girls. Um, Karma and her sister Pemba are the two, were the two youngest, youngest ones. 
And then the others, you know, two, two of them had to become nuns uh, in the monastery because that's one way that they can get education. Um, and one of them stayed in the village. And then another one we understood was studying at a different school. Uh, in a, we didn't, at the time, we didn't know where, but it was in a faraway place from the village. So, and Karma and Pemba were the last two and, and, and they had no plans for them at that, at that stage. Mm. So we, we said, okay, well, and Pemba was actually too young. She was only three years old at that time. So our focus was right. on Karma. And, and we said, you know, well, if Karma would like to study, uh, we'll help, we'll help find her a place to study. Um, you know, we'll, we'll help support that. You told in the book about going to visit them at their home and, and her mother was working out in the field and you said, Karma welcomed you in and, and, and how it was just so amazing. You told the story of how she pulled out some mats and wool rugs for you to sit on. And then she put a kettle on the stove and she did all this while she was looking after her three-year-old sister, Pemba. <laughs> and it was just, it was such a scene that you set up and, and such a feeling that you got from it, you know, how, how you went to visit them and you were right there in their little stone home and everything. But then you got into the research of finding a school yes yeah for, for them and that was really challenging you told all about that too tell us about that yeah yeah no that that was a whole story in itself because um we knew that we we knew enough to know that because of where they they live um they're up in that upper himalayan belt so more culturally more tibetan um buddhist and and whereas most of nepal especially around the urban areas is more kind of hindu totally culturally different um, and, and most of Nepal operates on, on the caste system. Uh, so whereas Karma and her family, because of where they, they, they live, um, they're actually considered um, more sort of, they call them indigenous. Uh, they're, more, they're considered indigenous. And so they're on very, you know, kind of the lower end of the caste. And, and so we knew that if we placed her in any school or, or you know, government school, that there, she would be at risk for... Um, particularly because she was a girl, she'd be at risk for severe um, racial and, and cultural discrimination. Um, so we knew that we, we had to find a school that was culturally aligned with her, um, you know, with who she is and with her, with her people. Um, mm -hmm. And so we, we spent a lot of time looking around Kathmandu and asking people and, and, uh, and, and couldn't find anything in Kathmandu. We came back to Canada and and kept searching for I think it was over a month we were we were still searching and 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 finally one day up pops this this school um, and it you know the picture it was kind of like the, the picture on the homepage was of these little kids uh, similar to the kids that we saw you know in, in Karma's village and you know kind of sunburnt and and in raggedy clothes and you know it's not kind of dripping down their their upper lips and and just very um, you know out there in the mountains and 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 the and the only thing you know at the top of the page it said education for the what they call it the lost children of the Himalaya because they're in such remote pockets that they just kind of get forgotten about um, so so we thought oh this this is and, and we did some research about you know okay who founded this and and it turns out that there is this um, the school was founded by this 80 plus year old Lama who is this high-ranking Lama and and um, and he had fled Tibet when I think in, in the 50s around the same time as the Dalai Lama and and um, you know, so I thought, oh, this is this is perfect. And, you know, so we wrote to the school at once and we said, you know, we have the perfect little girl for your school. And and, and the school is based in Kathmandu. So it'd be boarding school. The other thing, the important thing is that we wanted to find a safe, you know, safe environment for her. Um, so, yeah, so we wrote to the school and and they wrote back um, 
uh, right away the school director and she said uh said you know thank you for your note and you know fascinating story and fascinating you know little girl and uh, but i have to tell you that um our school is is way over capacity we have 500 kids at the school we're busting at the seams we have 400 kids on the wait list uh, we have kids being dropped off on the stairs that we have to turn away and because of all this there's only one person who can admit new children into the school and that is this 80 plus year old, um, you know, Frangu Rinpoche, this Lama. And um, and I thought, as I was reading her email, I remember I felt like I was being dropped down this black hole. I thought, you know, here's this little girl like out in this mountain village and all she wants to do is learn. <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. and like, why are all these barriers being stacked, you know, against this? And um, and then, but then the last line, Chantal, fortunately, she had put her, like our, our address in, in her email signature. And, and so the, the school director said, oh, but I see uh, in your email that you're, you're based in Vancouver, um, Canada. And, uh, and you may be interested to know that, um, that this founder, this Tibetan Lama, uh, is at his monastery right now um, in, in Richmond, which is which was a 20 minute drive from our home at that point. <laughs> I know. I, I just love that part. I'm like, Oh my gosh, am I reading this right? This is incredible. I, know. I was like, I'm like, I couldn't make this up. I, I mean, you know, just the whole journey brought us right back you know, where we started. And, um, and he, you know, he wasn't seeing anybody, but, um, but we were, fortunately we were able to see him and, and, and tell him the story. And, and, and I think I was supposed to have five minutes with him, but, um, but I think I ended up taking maybe closer to 30 minutes. <laughs> well, it was, it was awesome how you told the story of going to see him and what that was like. And uh, it, it was very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you know, you got to wonder sometimes these intricacies, right? And, and, yeah. and, and there's a Buddhist saying that, you know, when, when you approach something with pure and true heart, um, that all barriers fall away. And, and I really felt mm -hmm. that kind of coming through, you know, whether that's true or not, I believe it is true, but, um, I just felt like, yeah, I mean, if the intention is pure, if the intention is good, then, uh, then things start to, to line up. It, I think it's when our ego gets in the way, when we start to kind of try and, you know, drive towards a certain expectation. It was like me on the mountain, right? You know, when I was trying to force myself towards this goal, mm -hmm. um, things started falling apart. But the moment that, you know, you kind of center back to what is my intention? Why am I here? What am I here to do? Um, and start living in alignment with that, um, not getting attached to these these kind of expectations that we think we have. Um, that's when you know the, the magic starts happening. I think there were so many elements of this story that were just so incredible. <laughs> and Mindful Tribe, go to the website. Go to Michael's website. It's Michael Chow. It's M I C H A E L, and last name is S C H A U C H the ch is silent.com mm. so go to michaelshow.com and learn more about this because it is really intriguing and the the book is called a story of karma finding love and truth in the lost valley of the himalaya i want to ask you mike how is karma now what's what's the latest yeah yeah so it's a bit of a long story but i'll try and keep it concise um so they the girls um they went to school for several years in Kathmandu at that school. Uh, we ended up uh, having them come over here for an education and cultural exchange, which was the most beautiful. I mean, we can get into it. I don't know if we have time. For a year, right? For, for a year, yeah. And our, yeah, all, of, wow. all of our minds just expanded so much. I mean, 
you know, like seeing their level, is this, so there's something very interesting, you know, that we observe because, and I don't know if it's their culture or just their family, or it's probably both, but they're, they're kind of like the love in that family is just unreal. I, I think it's a, ri a richer and deeper love than I have seen anywhere else. And, um, and there's no judgment. Um, the father and mother, they're raising their girls um, with full acceptance, which is totally beautiful. So when the girls were here, you know, you could see that, that kind of that, I mean, they had a profound level of mindfulness I have never seen in other children. And, um, and, and by when they were here interacting with the other children, it was fascinating to watch. I mean, Karma, at one point, she, um, uh, you know, this was at the Waldorf school. Uh, she was um, helping out in the kindergarten class, uh, you know, just as part of, you know, because she loves to teach and, and she was with the younger kids. And that, would, that would, be, would be kind of an easier way for her to, you know, integrate with the, with the uh, culture. And, and so, uh, and so she was there and I remember her teacher saying, or the kindergarten teacher saying to me, so just by karma being in the classroom, the kids just adopted this whole sense of calm. I mean, you know, again, it's that energetic um, output, right? <laughs> Another time uh, that comes to mind is, um, I remember when we were, you know, with Karma and Pemba, I was, I don't know, I was late for something, uh, some sort of activity, I can't remember. Anyway, we were running around the house and I was like, girls, you know, we got to get your jackets and got to get your shoes and come on, you know, we're late and, and uh, rushing around and, and uh, Pemba, you know, 10 year old Pemba, she stopped me and she grabbed my arm. She said, Mike, I said, Mike, if we were to behave like this in my village, everybody would think that we were sick. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, it, uh, I was just like, you know what? You're, you're absolutely right. Let's yeah. stop. Let's just calm down. Let's just breathe. You know, <laughs> it's just, you know the, the lessons you learn from a 10-year-old. Um, oh, yeah. uh, so, yeah, so, they, were, so they, they had a beautiful experience here. Um, they went back to the school in Nepal um, and because of COVID, the school uh, has had to close down. So they're now back in their village, um, which is an interesting kind of turn of events. We're, we're speaking with them every one to two weeks. Um, and, you know, they're doing very well. Uh, they're in good health. And, and they're learning a whole other, I mean, the things that they're explaining to us now, now with the lens of having seen over here, having, you know, lived in Kathmandu. Um, and, you know, now back in the village, the kind of village education or, or um, village wisdom that they're learning now. I mean, it's, it's just as an example, when they got back there, um, how old would they have been? Six, Karma would have been uh, 15 and uh, Pemba was uh, 11. And the first thing that, uh, that they had to do was to, um, was to look after their, their household. Their, their family had to go harvest this little fossilized caterpillar out in the mountains. And so they said, okay, for the next two weeks, Carmen Pemba, you have to, um, you know, look after the household, look after all the animals, the sheep, the goats, the cows, uh, look after your baby nephew, uh, look after yourselves, you know, cook for yourselves. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and I just thought, you know, wow, I mean, that, that is yeah. not an experience they would have learned over here. You know? no. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't even know if that would be legal over here to leave two kids exactly. like that over two weeks. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so things like that. So I, I don't know, it's a fascinating, you know, who knows where things will go. Um, I, I think, you know, we're all in each other's lives and, uh, and that's for sure. We're continuing to grow our lives together. You know, again, it goes back to, 
I think it's beautiful the way that they're experiencing life and just the kind of resilience um, that they're picking up, no matter what life throws at them. I think they're really cultivating the sense of, you know, uh, being able to adapt and being able to quickly learn and, and, and being able to see different parts of the world and, and ask questions, you know, why are things the way they are like that? Because it's easy, you know, to put the blinders on if, we, if we're in one place for too long, right? They're doing really well and it, it's, it's just a bit of beautiful um, unfolding experience here. Yeah, well, it was, you know, outlined so well in your book. And it, was, it certainly kept me intrigued, that's for sure, <laughs> what was going to happen next, because there have been a lot of things happen that I wouldn't have predicted. <laughs> hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm cutting in here because Michael has just emailed me and said, I'm giving away a book to one lucky listener on the podcast. So email me, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com for your free book. And the first person that emails me gets the free book. So don't delay. Do it right now. And we'll send that free book to you directly. Oh, put a story of karma right there in the subject line. I always ask someone that I interview a question about bullying. Do you have a story? And I don't know, you know, whether that story might involve karma or you or as an adult or whatever, where mindfulness would have made a difference. I think I would go back to those examples I, I gave. I mean, just the level of mindfulness that they came here with. And, um, and you know, there's another story where Pemba's best friend here in Canada um, is Indigenous. Um, and her mom said to me one day, nobody has ever truly seen my daughter um, as Pemba sees my daughter. And uh, I, I just thought, wow, I mean, that's... You know, again, that deeper level of, of mindfulness that they're cultivating. Mm -hmm. um, there's one uh, story I remember watching them. This was in, in Nepal where we went to this one little monastery and the two of them, uh, Karma and Pemba, they, they approached the shrine and very intentionally uh, they put their hands to their forehead, to their lips, and then to their heart, uh, uttering this, this other Tibetan mantra, Nama Buddhaya, Namo uh, Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya. And what the translation of that is, it, it means um, uh, homage to the Buddha, which they consider my highest self, homage to my highest self, uh, homage to the teachings, you know, what has come before, the wisdom that we've been able to learn, and uh, homage to the community, um, homage to the interconnectedness of all things. And and, and that's the level of mindfulness that they're operating from, second nature. You, you know, I mean, how, how do we get there as, as a human race? I mean, is, is another yeah. question, but, but it was just, you know, I, I think if we all kind of sort of, you know, practice that kind of deep mindfulness, I mean, think about the world, you know, where we would be, right? Um, yeah. and, and, and this topic of bullying, where, where that would be. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but it's, it's just, yeah. uh, it, was, it was just fascinating to watch. Yeah, well, thank you for writing this book, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Bruce, for having me on. It just has so many positive messages. Mike, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Okay. So okay. Just 30-second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a very powerful mindfulness influence in your life? My mom. Uh, my mom, she, she always taught me to, to just be steady, be in the moment, don't 
try and attach yourself to expectations or results or, you know, any of that, don't worry about that. Express yourself um, and, and trust yourself and be confident. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's uh, taught me to be much more accepting, much more um, calm, um, trusting with love. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is rhythm. And that's something we didn't talk about, but it's something I practice very deeply in the mountains and in nature. Uh, connecting with nature is, is part of my, um, my meditation practice. And so breathing is a, is a core component of that. Beautiful. Your book that you've written is wonderful. The book, once again, Mindful Tribe is called A Story of Karma. Do you have any other books that you would recommend that are based on mindfulness or would help someone with mindfulness? Uh, one that comes to mind is, um, it's called In Love with the World. Uh, In Love with the World, I, I've got it here. I don't know if, uh, if people are watching, but they can see Mingir Rinpoche. And it's about a, uh, he's, he's a Tibetan Lama, Tibetan monk, and he very, you know, kind of high ranking. And one day he decided he wanted to leave his monastery. He wanted to escape his monastery and go somewhere where nobody would know him. And so he ended up going down to, he, he escaped his monastery, ended up traveling down to India, where he lived uh, for some time uh, on a subway floor. And again, this is a guy who's revered, you know, in his community. Um, and, and nobody would ever allow him to do that in his community. But there he was um, living on this floor of subway and just trying to connect with people uh, who you know, had no preconceived notion of who he is. Um, and he talked a lot about, I'll just mention briefly, he talked a lot about this concept of the bardo. And the bardo is uh, it's a Tibetan word for, um, well, the Tibetans believe in reincarnation, right? We know that. Um, yes. But they believe not in the sense of reincarnation necessarily from lifetime to lifetime, they believe in multiple reincarnations within one lifetime. So we have the ability to choose to reincarnate in, in, you know, over and over and over again in the same lifetime. And the bardo is the place of transition where we enter and we get to choose what of my past do I want to carry forward with me? And, and what do I want to, to no longer, what no longer serves me? What do I want to let go of? And so he talks a lot about that. And, and it's a very fascinating concept because if you think about it, um, if we have the ability to choose who we want to become, not be defined by something that happened to us in the past, we have that ability to choose. We can reincarnate into a new life um, at any moment in our life. And sometimes, you know, there's a milestone uh, event that, that sort of prompts that. But, uh, but really, it's, it's up to us to, to make that choice. We choose whether to carry those things from our past with us. Uh, into the future or or not. And um, and so I thought, you know, that that's a, a very fascinating way to look at reincarnation in one lifetime. And the book is called In Love? Uh, in Love the with the World, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll look that up. I haven't read that book. So thanks for sharing that, Michael. And one last question on this round. Is there an app which you would recommend that can help people with mindfulness? Um, well, my app is, uh, is nature. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh -huh. I, you know what I spend, well, we, we spend, uh, I think in the, in our world so much time on technology in front of computer screens. Um, I think it's really important for me anyways, to, to be in nature, um, recalibrate. It clears, it's, it's like, um, it gives me space. Um, you know, and again, it goes back to your first question on, on mindfulness. Uh, when I'm in nature, I'm not thinking about 
you know, anything else. I'm, 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 I'm thinking about if I'm hiking, I'm thinking about, you know, how is my foot landing on that route or that rock? Or, you know, if I'm rock climbing, well, I have to think about exactly that moment. Otherwise it's, it can, it can right. be fatal. Even if I'm belaying, you know, my partner. Um, so I, I think, you know, even if somebody doesn't have access to nature, um, just to sit by a tree or, or to be under a tree or, or, you know, just find that presence in nature, uh, wherever nature may be around you, um, I think is, is very, very critical. Well, Michael, thank you for writing this book. Like I said before, it has really been an incredible journey reading the book. And, uh, you know, I, I think we could talk for another couple of hours about <laughs> yeah, your, your experiences <laughs> and how they relate to mindfulness and everything else. But do you have one last comment that you'd like to offer to Mindful Tribe, one last suggestion about how we can live our lives with mindfulness and be happy and be content? I think practicing acceptance is, is really, really important um, to be gentle on ourselves, right? We've all had struggle. We've all had suffering. We all continue to have suffering. And, and I think um, just to be gentle on ourselves and accept, you know, that that's what life is and, and, uh, and not just get too attached to that, to that suffering, whatever it might be. Well, thanks for being on the show and all the very best to you, Mike. <laughs> Thank you very much, Bruce. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye now. Bye. Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening, for subscribing, and for reviewing the show, and for telling your friends about Mindfulness Mode. Thanks also to Erica Flint's Cascade Hypnosis Center for being our valued sponsor. Erica is a terrific teacher of hypnosis, and I know that because I am a graduate of her program. Now, if you're a healer, a coach, a therapist, a counselor, or just someone who loves helping people. You might want to consider the powerful results that can be achieved with hypnosis. You can learn how to do it. Contact the team over at CascadeHypnosisCenter.com and take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.